This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. I want to welcome everyone to episode number 20 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? Kim, I'm doing really well. How are you? I am doing well. It's been a while since we talked. Our last show was April 30th, and a lot's been happening with you. You've been traveling a lot. Uh, I know you went to 80s WrestleCon in New Jersey, and you've been working on your podcast, not just the John Rizzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight, but the Gibby Show podcast. So you've been a bit, very busy guy. Yeah, it's been uh, a lot of fun getting to travel a little bit and going to 80s WrestleCon in New Jersey, promoted by Tommy Fierro. Got to see uh, some great friends that I hadn't seen in a long time, like George Napolitano and and we have a special guest today, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, who uh, I saw there actually in person for the first time, although we've communicated via telephone and text, et cetera, and of course on social media. But I was down in Florida just kind of like on a vacation for a week as well. You know, when I was in New Jersey, uh, I got a chance to spend time with my nephew, go see a Mets game. So, yeah, it's been fun. But back here in the trenches and doing a lot of work with the, the Gibby show each and every week, we put out a show which is just filled every single week with great guest stars. We've had Ken Rosenthal on recently. We've had top Blue Jay stars on each and every week. Uh, this week, I'm looking forward to too, as well. We have Buck Martinez on, the play-by-play guy for uh, the Blue Jays, and he was a former manager and a catcher. That'll be fun. Um, we had Chris Bassett on recently, so uh, it's really a lot of fun. The numbers are great. I really have a love. I've uh, developed a real love for the Toronto Blue Jays, except for this weekend when they um, swept my New York Mets, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I, I want to go back for a second to WrestleCon, 80s WrestleCon, when you did your first conventions, which were the first real wrestling conventions back in the day. What does it mean to you now going to these conventions and like being part of it and walking around going like, I I remember when I started this. Now look at it. They run by themselves. They run all over the country now. You're the godfather. You're the godfather. Yeah, I mean, there were some uh, conventions that took place uh, late 80s. There were there were a few, but mine was really kind of the largest ever for the time. And then they've evolved over the last 30 years to be these mainstays now between Tom, what Tommy does up in the Northeast and New Jersey area, WrestleCon every, every year around WrestleMania. There's the gap. There's so many of 
them. They're they're all over the country, and it's kind of cool to see how the industry has grown over the 30 years. And I think there'll always be a need for wrestling fan conventions because the fans and the wrestlers that is a lot of enjoyment, and it, and it keeps guys busy making money years after they retired, which is the best thing. And Tommy announced that he's going to do his very first 90s wrestling con up in New Jersey, and that'll be the last week in September. So I'll I'll certainly be be making my way up there as well. I I just want to let everyone know that you're the first one that really started it, making it into something. It was an annual thing you did. And, you know, I know what you went through, and we talk about a lot on the podcast of what you had to go through, the hoops you had to jump through, and to see where it has evolved to now. I hope you just take some pride in that, knowing that you were a big part of that. Yeah, I mean, there's always that, uh, that I was kind of a little bit of an innovator back in uh, the 90s when I did that uh, year after year. And to hear guys like Tommy Fierro, who kind of looked at me as this guy who did it first, and and then Tommy started doing those regularly. I mean, it it really is kind of cool to to go back and say, hey, listen, I was one of the first guys to do it. And I promoted the biggest ones for that time in New York during uh, the early 90s. I just I know you don't you're embarrassed all the time when I, I go too deep into this, but I just want everyone to know how much because I was there. I was there for this. I saw how they grew. You helped out a great deal. There, you know, I got lots of pictures of you helping out at those conventions. You were there. How many uh, conventions did you help me out? Uh, you did. If you did four, I, I did three. I don't think you were at the first one in no. ninety, but ninety one, ninety two, ninety three. You were certainly. And there. I remember seeing in the magazines because the first one had Sting at it, and I mm-hmm. think it was Ricky Steamboat was at it. And, right. Uh, yeah, Terry Funk, Bruno. Cactus Jack, Herb Abrams announced the UWF formation there. Uh, So that was also a a trip. It it was very cool. It was very cool. And thank you for letting me be part of that. And now I look at when I when I go to these different conventions and stuff, I just look around and just go, wow, things have changed. And it's changed better for not only the promotions, but for the wrestlers. It's something that they can look forward to now, say they can make money in the future after their career is over. But let's continue because we have a very big show. We have a special guest on the show. I want to thank, as we always do, our Patreons, patreon.com slash John Rizzi. We've been really getting a lot of feedback since we haven't been on doing our show since April. We've been getting a lot of feedback about the 8mm films. At Madison Square Garden and using them as a companion piece to this podcast. Thank you so much for that. It's something I know that John worked really hard on and I, I pushed up for it and so did Richie pushed very hard to do that because we think think it was really great. So thank you to the, our Patreons for enjoying that. And John, what is new now for the Patreons uh, up at patreon.com slash John Rizzi? We continue each and every week to put up uh, great content of the history in my archives, not just those films, of course, but we have uh, vintage audio We have a lot of video up there, but the main thing is to give fans the complete archives of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show. At this point in time, 218 original episodes are up there in their entirety for fans to enjoy. And the podcast that I do, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, uh, goes back 30 years each and every week to review the show I did 30 years ago. So we had a really cool one about uh, a week ago with Ron Scholar, who I put the AAA deal together with in 93 with Conan and Antonio Pena. So Ron got to hear himself on the radio for the first time or review that first appearance of his 30 years ago uh, when he just got back from Mexico City uh, where they started the angle with Conan and Jake the Snake Roberts. So that was really cool. I love bringing back the guests 
that for the first time hear themselves on the air from 30 years ago. So we've been doing a lot of that. We're also specials that we've been producing and we'll be talking about that here when it comes to superstar Billy Graham. And uh, we just uh, tried to put together a pro wrestling spotlight reunion, bringing on the Power Twins and Broadway Sonny Blaze and Bruce Jacobs and Donnie Liable, uh, that really first early crew of the first year of the show. Uh, But when we attempted to do it, the Power Twins, uh, as uh, they have typically done over the years, they couldn't get it together. They were always crazy and bullies back in the studio when I first met them, and they've never changed. So um, it was so technically bad because they couldn't get a good Wi-Fi. They were in the same room on two different devices. There was echo. There was feedback there. One was on a phone. One was on an iPad. It was upside down. It was sideways. You could see one of their cheeks. They were talking to themselves and not us. So after uh, after trying for weeks to get them all together, together in the same place and time, uh, and then the cluster blank that it turned into, we decided that we're not going to even put it out except for patrons. I put up a poll (laughs) to the patrons and I'm like, even though this sucks, (laughs) do you still want it as it is? Because it sucks. And 88% said they want to hear it in its entirety. And then there was another 13% that said, yeah, put it up, but edit it. Uh, But no one said they didn't want to hear it. So uh, patrons will be getting that. (laughs) And uh, it's a joke. It really is. I, I, you know what? We we are working together to to do more of these things, but do them in, in better technical quality. The tech part of it, we will work on to get it better together. I, we Tim, this is that. like we're in a world-class studio in comparison to that reunion show that we tried to do. It was uh, amazingly bad. It was reminiscent of the first days on Pro Wrestling Spotlight, except for times that by 10 times worse or 100 times worse. I'm not going to attempt to do it again with the Twins, because they just can't get it together and they don't give a shit. So it's just kind of like, all right, patrons, you're going to get it. And uh, you all voted to get it. So it's at your own risk when you listen to it or watch it with a special video link. Join the family, join the fun, join the history, patreon.com slash John yes. Rizzi. Uh, we have a special guest that you talk about. You saw again at, at WrestleCon. Please introduce this guest. Well, here's a gentleman that, of course, I knew of his legacy. He was the um, owner of Ring of Honor from 2004 to 2011. Um, he's a Ring of Honor Hall of Famer. And he's somebody that goes back as far back as I do uh, of going to the garden as a fan. And we've become friends. He's uh, somebody that I really respect and admire for everything that he did with Ring of Honor and uh, his fandom and his collection, his archives are, are really, really cool as well. So uh, I'd love to bring on the one and only Carrie Silken, direct from Pennsylvania. Thank you, John. Thank you, Tim. It's great to uh, join you guys finally. It was really cool because I also attended what convention was uh 80s rest oh the uh wing ring of champions 1992 that was the third one i wasn't aware of who was running it it was in queens right yeah it was right across the street from LaGuardia airport at the Uh, ramada hotel when i saw john as you mentioned we have communicated for the last year here and there it was nice to shake hands and uh here we are i got a great photo of us together too so i'm gonna put that up on the socials. Carrie, what do you remember from the convention? You went to number three. That was the Bruno one, the Zabisco one. A Lightning Kid was there. Very little. What what year, John? What year was that? That was in 92. I don't remember a lot. I don't know why I didn't stay a long time. Do you remember a guy named Eddie Grice? 
Oh, absolutely. The guy that used to go to Puerto Rico and, and right. put together those bloody was, tapes you know, that he would sell there. I was able to buy, I remember buying posters from him. Okay. And who were the big stars at that one? Uh, the, the main event, so to speak, was Bruno and Zabisco's reunion, which we actually put in the main ballroom. But we had Jushin Thunder Liger, Captain Lou Albano, Handsome Jimmy Valiant, Wendy Richter, Killer Kowalski, Nikolai Volkov, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. I'm probably forgetting a few. Uh, and then you know, guys like Sean Waltman, the Power Twins, Sonny Blaze, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. There was a bunch of people that we just gave tables to so they could come and attend it. My memory is I don't know why I didn't spend more time there, but I was there. I bought some posters from Eddie Grice. Don't forget, this is way pre-internet, way pre-eBay. And since then, I've become an avid wrestling poster collector through eBay. There's also, do you know this name, John? Uh, John Griffin? Oh, of course, yeah. Right. Uh, I bought some stuff privately. But yeah, I was at John's convention, even though my memory of that is uh, shaky. What I wanted to just uh, reiterate to people who are listening right now, back in the day, there was no eBay. There was, another, if you, there was no p- way to get this kind of stuff unless you're around it. So, And somebody said this very funny about the convention one time. They said, yeah, these prices are all jacked up. So on Monday, they go back to normal. But like for the weekends, when you go there for the first time, you'll see stuff that you've never seen before, like Kerry was saying, and yet got to buy it now because there, there's not going to be tomorrow you couldn't find a wrestling poster it was unique at the time as well as of course meeting these guys that john would bring in Uh, i'm sure if i would have had the chance to meet bruno who i later did we had him at ring of honor in 2006 which was just a wonderful experience i think the line was too big for for autographs because i certainly would have wanted to get one well that's a great question for john bruno's third convention i think he was out of yours i think he was at one and two also and i remember two was my first convention he wouldn't take any money for autographs do you remember that no he would not i could sell pictures i could sell as many eight by tens as i wanted even polaroids i would be allowed to do that but as far as money for his signature he would not allow it it had to be pre sal Carenti. Probably. Can I tell the Ring of Honor story real quick? Sure. 2006, Ring of Honor's on our level was doing okay. Brian Danielson, Nigel McGuinness, Lowkey, the Briscoes were doing good. We had run the Hammerstein or the Manhattan Center a couple of times. So Gabe Sapolsky was the booker. And Gabe was very knowledgeable knowledgeable about wrestling history. And we'd had Dusty Rhodes one time, Jim Carnett, few legends. And I suggested Bruno. We're in New York City. I'm 66. Gabe's 20 years younger, say, maybe a little older. Regardless, 20 years younger. So Gabe says to me, you know, Carrie, I know he was one of your wrestling heroes, but our fans, you know, they're not really going to care about him. It was four grand at the time. So we had to do the deal through uh, Mr. Carenti. Make a long story short, Gabe was incorrect because we had to extend the intermission because there were so many people that wanted Bruno's autograph. And when Bruno came out to make the rah-rah, you know, I love Ring of Honor speech, which we had to explain to him what it was. You know, they're always hanging from the rafters, right? They're always Mm -hmm. standing ovation. 
There was a serious, long standing ovation. And when the people mellowed out, Bruno said, I'm really shocked because most of you weren't even, now this was 2006. He says, most of you here, a lot of you were either babies or weren't born. You know, when I did my last match in 86, 87. So it was really nice having him. We also got to do uh, with Jim Cornette and Bruno, we did a shoot interview. And Bruno will not, as you know, John, he does not break kayfabe. And Jim Carnett knew that too. But uh, what a nice man. Gentlemen, yeah. and uh, as far as being respected by fans, young, old, no matter what your demographic is, Bruno San Martino is certainly somebody that's got to be on the top of the list of all-time respected wrestlers because he always respected the business. Absolutely. And if you grew up a wrestling fan in the New York area, and I'm talking about the 2006 Ring of Honor crowd, which was mm -hmm. your typical 20s, 30s, majority, almost exclusively male crowd, they all knew Bruno. Gabe was smart with a lot of stuff, but uh, he underestimated the value of Bruno. It's like you're going to tell we don't want Babe Ruth. <laughs> so right. it That's exactly that, right. Good analogy. That's my Bruno story. Going back to the conventions, we're going to tie it into something else here. Uh, the second convention Bruno was at, again, like Kerry was saying, he, he didn't break kayfabe. He was always that guy. And John was able, I don't know how you did it, John. If you want to tell the story for me, please. So I don't know if Kerry has heard the story before. Tell the story how you got Bruno to do a handshake with a, a wrestler that is just a legend that just passed away. With Buddy Rogers you're talking about. Oh, oh, no, no, no. That was another one. That was his famous. Yeah, I'll get to the question. But that what I was referring to, Tim, was the, you know, I can't take credit for it because George Ann Macropolis got Bruno and Buddy Rogers together to get a handshake because they didn't like each other. Or Bruno didn't like him at all. You know, there was a lot of heat there. But anyway, you know, I digress. Go back to who you were actually referring to. All right. Since the last show, we we're saddened to learn that the passing of a friend of the show and a legend, superstar Billy Graham. I was fortunate enough to work the, two, the convention in 91 and that you had Bruno there, but also a special guest was superstar Billy Graham. And there was a picture taken with superstar Billy Graham and Bruno Sammartino. Yeah, that was uh, pretty historic. And the thing that you got to go back to, you know, Graham obviously had been uh, at this point with all of the uh, steroid abuse that he did over the years, starting to really get into bad health. But to have him at that convention and to have him take a picture with Bruno meant an awful lot. The only thing I wish would have been different is that if Bruno would have been in that main autograph room because he refused to be in there with all the other legends, he wanted to be separated because he didn't want to be in the same room as Rogers. <laughs> Huh. Uh, so uh, that's why he and everyone else in the room, you know, you get charged for autographs or whatever, and he didn't want to do that. So uh, I just wish that, um, you know, for the group pictures and all of that, that Bruno could have been a part of that. But yeah, losing superstar Billy Graham last month was really sad. I mean, you knew it was coming because his health had deteriorated, but he kept bouncing back from all of these things that were going on with his health. He lingered because he was a firm, you know, firm believer in faith, as is his wife, his Valerie. And they would always pray for miracles. And Billy hung on probably, probably almost 10 years longer than people expected him to be around. And when he finally passed, it was this outpouring of 
tributes from every corner of the wrestling world, no matter how old or young you were. Here is a guy that changed the wrestling business with his physique, with his charisma. When superstar Billy Graham made his way into a wrestling ring, every eye was on him. He was just way ahead of his time, and he changed the business. Uh, I would think, Carrie, you'd have to agree. Absolutely. I was fortunate to see a number of his title defenses at Madison Square Garden and seeing him previously when he came in. But he had the it factor. It was magic when they put the belt on him and let him keep it. And at that point in time, I'd lived as a kid through the Bruno losing to Koloff, and then three weeks later, Koloff loses to Pedro Morales. And then when Morales lost to Stasiak, it was for a week or something like that. Yeah, it was only a week. This was the first time there was a heel champion, and they Pick the right guy. These stories have been told. I feel like me speaking about this is something everyone's been hearing recently, but it's just, it's the truth. I was there. I used to like the bad guys. I used to like the heels. Mm -hmm. Now, the first show my dad took me to, which was Freddie Blassie against Pedro Morales when I, on my 14th birthday, John has spoken about this. It's not a secret. The crowd was 90% Latino, right. 80, 80, 90% Puerto Rican Latino. That's the way it was. When Blassie came out in 1971, my first show, I stood up and my father, he grabs me by my jeans by my ass and just pulls me says sad you're gonna get us killed here you had to be you had you had to be careful because blassie was not only hated i mean he you know he, he had that blonde he was the consummate heel morales of course beloved by puerto rican audience and you always had to be mindful that if something bad went down in the ring with pedro there was going to be a riot. Absolutely. With Superstar Graham, this was the first time that I saw where he was getting, you know, a partial baby face reaction. Yes. yes, he was still predominantly a heel. No doubt about it. But there were a lot of, we call them smart fans, but I don't even think it was smart fans. There were people that just, uh, as John was saying, there was just this magic to him. And he won the people over. It was like, you know, subconsciously, they wanted to like him. And they right. did. As you guys have spoken about, I've listened to every episode. I love this because I was at many of them. But a lot of these matches were garbage. At the time, John and Tim, we accepted it. But with Superstar, uh, I mean, there were all there were also good matches. You know, I saw some great matches. Bruno Spiros Arion. We know the names. But Billy Graham matches were special. It's a big loss, although he was almost 80 years old. And let's face it, he abused his body. But what a mark he made. And he laid the groundwork for Hogan and Jesse the Body. And there's a bunch of other names. The legacy that he left also, when you look at even to this day, why Vince McMahon calls his performers WWE superstars. It is all based on superstar Billy Graham. The love-hate relationship that these two had for each other is probably a book or a movie should be done about it. To this day, when you hear that term, WWE superstar, it really was inspired and dictated by Vince McMahon to call these guys superstars 
as a as a tribute to superstar Billy Graham. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What has it been, 25 years since they used the term wrestler? Yeah. Hey, John, do you remember seeing Billy Graham on Channel 41 with the wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium? It was yes, a- I do. He was with Dr. Jerry. Dr. Jerry, yeah. And that's when he first used the name Superstar. But I saw him a few times on uh, the snowy Channel 41. Mm -hmm. That was such a treat for the wrestling nerds of that era could only get your information through wrestling magazines. There was no cable TV. But magically, as John has mentioned, Channel 47 started showing wrestling from Florida, and magically, Channel 41 started showing. It was on Wednesdays, two hours from the Olympic Auditorium. That was in Spanish, but I didn't I didn't care. That was wonderful. I know we have other things to talk about because we could start with this and uh, go for hours. But uh, yeah, that's where I first saw, you know, besides the magazines, I got to see uh, Superstar Graham, and then he showed up in WWWF. Well, I'm enjoying this so much, listening to you guys talk. We're going to go over the history of superstar Billy Graham at Madison Square Garden in a minute and get your feedback. But what I want to ask both of you, and we'll start with Kerry on this one. You know, there's been thousands of wrestlers before superstar Billy Graham that we talk about. You know, they're they're great wrestlers. They're great this. They're great that. But superstar Billy Graham had something special that no one else, or maybe had the combo, the combo of everything. Uh, Kerry, start with you. What did he have that guys before him didn't have and it changed the wrestling industry like john said from that moment on it it was the it factor we could talk about his body we could talk about the tight eye we could also talk about you know he didn't need the grand wizard but yet it worked and uh, that was very interesting he was just magic that's how i would say it john he had that indelible it factor And when he first appeared in the WWWF with the wizard, who, as Carrie said, he didn't really need the wizard. I did an interview with Billy and asked him that question. Why the wizard? He gave me a good answer. He was kind of like, you know, he was a good mouthpiece. He was flamboyant himself. So it was a good pairing. It it was a better pairing than putting him with Albano or Blassie. And at that time, as both of you know, I mean, if you were going to be challenging for the title, if you were going to be one of the top guys as a heel, they always put you with somebody. One of the three wise men, as Paul Lee dangerously would say. One of the reasons why they did that is right off the bat, when you come in, you know he's a heel. They're a heel because they're with a with a manager. Right. That could be another reason, Tim, because uh, if he wasn't with anyone, maybe the fans would have started cheering him without that element of the whiz being by his side. But they cheered him anyway. It was a requirement. Unless, John, is there someone we're forgetting that was a major heel that would challenge Sam Martino or Morales that didn't have a manager? I don't think so. I'm trying to rack my brain right now. Um, well, not, not in that era. Not right. in that era. You know, at the Garden, the heel managers would come out 
and they'd go right in the back. They, they weren't allowed to stay ringside because no. of the athletic commission and because how close the fans were to the action, because those were the days before the steel barriers right. no encircled rope. the ring. I think maybe by the Billy Graham era, they might have put the bicycle rails up. But if you watch some of these early 70s, and that's what we're talking about today, they had nothing. No. That's why I used to love it. As soon as I showed up at the garden, uh, you know, when I was a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, the first thing I would do is run up to the ring and bang the mat, touch the turnbuckles, hit the turnbuckles until security kind of said, all right, you know, this, this was always before the show started. And it was kind of cool sometimes to get autographs. I remember in some of my early shows going up right to the ring and on one program, I wish I had it on the front cover. I had Morales signature and Vince McMahon, who was the ring really? announcer. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Yeah. We, we need a longer time for this show. We, we are going this. I'm enjoying this conversation. And I, I just want to go real, back real quick. What, what Kerry was just saying, the managers didn't stay out. That is the biggest arena and they got their biggest payday and they had to do the least amount of work. Well, they did plenty of work doing the promos. The promos. To sell the tickets. Yeah. They come out there, they do their thing, they go back. But Tim, they would, they would let Arnold Skolin stay out. Yeah. Because he had to pass the blade along to Bruno sometimes. Right. <laughs> Well, let's get back to superstar Billy Graham, who I didn't know at the time he was trained by Stu Hart, which is pretty incredible. Billy made his first appearance at Madison Square Garden on December 15th, 1975. He only needed nine seconds to defeat Dominic DiNucci. Uh, John, do you remember that day? Of course I do, because uh, I was with George Napolitano, and we got Billy at the airport. We took him to the New York State Athletic Commission to get his license. Okay, okay. Go back, go back, go back. So George calls you. How does how does this all come well, about? Well, I used to hang out with George all the time back then, you know, and we had developed a great friendship, and we always would meet up in New York to have dinner, you know, perhaps before the show or and hang out afterwards. And on this, he goes, I got to go to the airport. We got to get Billy Graham. And George had developed a friendship with Billy when he met Billy in Texas. And then Billy told him that he was going to be uh, coming to the WWF. And George actually became his, um, not just a chauffeur in a way. Billy stayed at the Howard Johnson's on 8th Avenue. That's where his home was when really? he was in New York. Yeah. Uh, he eventually bought a place out on Long Island after he won the title. But he, he his headquarters were at the Howard Johnson's. But he used George's address, George's home address in Brooklyn, as his official mailing address. George would be like, I'd get all these packages, you know, like for Billy Graham, you know, and, and you know, you know what was in them. But it's kind of George has a lot of great stories about it. But that that day, I, I never forget because I, I was already a big superstar Billy Graham mark. And he had actually made his first appearance in the territory in October of 75 in a tag team match at the Boston Garden where he teamed up with uh, Spiro Sarion against San Martino and Danucci and it was a two out of three fall match and Billy had appeared on TV but his first kind of house show was there at the Boston Garden and he pinned Bruno in the third fall and right in the middle of the ring after a knee drop off the top and this is when I knew that they're gonna give this guy a freaking big push big big push yeah Bruno got pinned in uh you could probably count on one hand. Right. Well, yeah, if you include Ivan Koloff and Billy Graham, there was like three tag matches, maybe. That was it. That was yeah. a shock that night in Boston. And it was like, it was cool for me because I sold a bunch of the pictures of that show to uh, after. And, you know, I had him going off the top rope with the knee. I had the referee counting to three. So I had this all documented. And it was it was an amazing. And the fans in Boston, uh, it was stunned silence on their part. 
uh, when Bruno got pinned in the middle by this upstart superstar Billy Graham, who had just made his debut on TV. And for um, Danucci to lose in, uh, what did you say, nine seconds? Yep. Yes. I mean, that was Bruno. You know, they, he and Bruno, they were uh, they were buddies and uh, more than buddies. They were like best friends. So he did the favors and uh, he really uh, put a rocket on superstar Graham. Absolutely. And that rocket really took off on April 30th, 1977 in Baltimore. Superstar Billy Graham defeated Bruno San Martino to win the WWF World Championship, of course, using the ropes. You can see this match on YouTube. And I wanted to go over this really quick with you two gentlemen because you would understand more than anybody else. I'm watching this match and it's filmed for TV, but it's not made for TV. It's like watching a theater because everything's very exaggerated and they're not playing towards the television. They're actually playing towards the crowd. And this is years in the making because there was no drop kicks. There was nobody going off the top rope or diving outside the It was a lot of power moves, a lot of feats of strength with each other. And when Billy Graham would sell, he would sell everything. So when he gets a hip toss to him, when he lands, his arm isn't going up going, oh my gosh, his arm went to his back because it hurt so bad. It was amazing to watch this, and this is one thing I loved about watching him. He was selling to the whole crowd. He wasn't selling to a small little TV crowd. He was selling to the whole crowd, and you can really see and listen. They weren't pumping in old crowd noises. This crowd was popping whatever they did. Yeah, it was uh, it was a special time, and especially that night, too. I mean, it wasn't on uh, national TV. It wasn't on MSG or any HBO. Or there was It was just film for WWF. And uh, April 30th that night when Billy won the title against Bruno, uh, Napolitano, I have to go back to him. He he took Billy to that show and Billy was in the car and, and Billy still kayfade him a little bit, but just told George, you know, how much film do you got tonight? You got a lot of film with you. You need a lot of film tonight. And kind of George, you know, put two and two together. And then it, it was kind of crazy because after Billy won the won the match, they went right into uh, George's car. Billy didn't even change into his street clothes. Billy changed clothes in the car, and they wound up celebrating at a rest stop having a hot dog. Uh, But George was there, and he relayed that story. I did a special podcast that's not out yet, but it will be on Superstar Billy Graham with George and Keith Elliott Greenberg Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast coming out. But yeah, George has great stories, and with Billy, my interaction with him back then, I interviewed him a lot. I always loved taking pictures of him. He was my favorite person to take pictures of because he always knew where the camera was. He always posed. And even when he would put a guy in a headlock, he'd make sure that the cameras were right there and they'd be, you know, given a wink. And then he'd like yell, cover shot, you know, <laughs> things like that. So the memories I have of him are incredible. And the dinners I had, you know, in St. Louis once with him and George again, and then getting to know him as much as I did uh, very deeply when the scandals broke. But uh, I'll never forget this guy. Going over some of the matches at the Garden in the 70s, these were sellouts, constant sellouts. And usually, yeah. you know, when you're talking about who who's versing Pedro for these years, who's going against Pedro? Well, they come to see Pedro. Sure, the other guy. Superstar Billy Graham was the attraction. If he had the belt or didn't have the belt, he was an attraction. He certainly was. And, I mean, he would fire the crowd up. There was no ring music back then. As soon as that curtain opened up at the garden, Carrie, you could attest to this, the roar from the crowd, it would be deafening. Right. I saw a, a lot of concerts in the 70s, and it rivaled uh, like a Led Zeppelin encore. Yeah, it, it was did. loud. It was loud right from the opening bout. But when Bruno or, you know, Superstar Graham would come out, it was a special kind of loud. Remember, John, that rumbling. 
Yeah. Now, there was that rumbling in the building. You could really feel it shake. Yes. Billy Graham's opponents were, he had some good opponents, though, with Moscaris and Dusty Rose and Ivan Putsky, who I never thought was that great in the ring, although he made a lot of money and he was very popular. If you haven't seen that match from the garden, it's on the network or YouTube. It's really good. So Superstar Graham brought the best out of everyone. That would be, uh, Tim, and I know you have all the dates there, too. I think it was August 29th, 1977. Sellout crowd included a closed circuit at the Felt Forum uh, where Billy and Putski uh, were in a uh, Texas death match, which I think we're going to talk about later as well. But uh, for me, because I had gone to all those shows in a row from August 71 till 77, and that was the time that I stopped going because I was in college in Boston and those shows, unless it was a Christmas holiday or Thanksgiving, spring break or whatever, I missed many of Graham's title defenses at the Garden in 77 because I, I, I was at college. So when did you start college? 70, and uh, was it uh, the fall I started of college in 75, but that was the year I stayed at school in 77, and I, I got more involved in, in other things in Boston. I, I'd go to all the Boston Garden shows, but the Garden shows, I couldn't because they were Monday nights. If a semester is in session, you can't just go to New York for a wrestling show and then go back and get into your classes the next day, you know? But it killed me when I when I missed that first show. It killed me. And it killed me when I missed all of these shows. Well, you missed a lot of these shows, and they were sellout shows at the Garden. This is very important to remember. Selling out shows at the Garden was very hard to do, but they have this new champion, superstar Billy Graham. He he fought, you know, Gorilla Monsoon. We, we talked about Ivan Pusky was in there. Again, going back with Bruno back and forth. The Felt Forum opened up. The Felt Forum is right next to the Garden. This is what the Felt Forum is. The Felt Forum is 4,500 seats extra that people can watch it on a screen. So people were paying not only to go to the Garden and watch it live, but right next door, watch it on the screen. You had 4,500 people that couldn't get in that actually go and watch it on the screen. I find that incredible. Yeah, it was amazing that uh, that spillover, once that garden show sold out, they had to open up the forum to show this on closed circuit, and that filled up as well. That's how big he was. And going back to what you were saying, I never saw these matches, but I remember these matches because superstar Billy Graham knew where the camera was. So when he knew where George was taking pictures, you see that great match of Billy Graham and Dusty Rhodes. You saw that great but match. All the magazines, they were on the covers of all the magazines, all the aftermags, all of George's magazines. Billy Graham sold magazines. Billy was never afraid to get color, as they say. So those bloody covers on all of those magazines back in that era, they sold old and it just was an amazing time for the entire industry i may be wrong on the my timeline here but george napolitano would be able to verify this but there was like also a hipster audience and what i mean by that was andy warhol debbie harry this is yes. cindy lauper it was yeah Debbie Harry was not a big, huge star yet. There was just this underground vibe, and it, it all played together, the psychedelia and everything else. And uh, it was a very special time. Yeah, I love the superstar. And, and, you know, you talk about a special time in history. When we talk about the Garden, we're talking about New York. We're talking about CBGBs, and we're talking about Studio 54 at this time. These are legendary places all happening at the same time while professional wrestling is happening there, and the star professional wrestling is is now superstar Billy Graham. Yeah, uh, he certainly had that era. I mean, the 70s, the psych psychedelic era, all of that stuff. I mean, he just was a, a cultural phenomenon. 
And that rain lasted till February 20th, 1978. Another sellout crowd, not only on closed circuit next door at the Fell Forum, but Billy Graham lost the title to Bob Backlund, which was a huge thing. Why, why did something like this happen, gentlemen? I wonder why didn't they, Billy was so big, why didn't they turn him babyface? Kerry, let's start with you. From what I've heard, you know, Vince McMahon Sr. had told him in the beginning that this is when you're getting the belt and this is when you're going to lose it. I think it was way more successful than McMahon Sr. expected it to be, but a man of honor, he had made a commitment to Bob Backlund and Eddie Graham, I believe. Yeah, and, it was uh, uh, it was down in Texas when they, when they had the meeting. It was uh, it was Billy Graham and Eddie Graham, uh, Vince McMahon Sr., and he told Billy that this was the day you're going to win the title. And this is the day you're going to lose the title. It was all set in stone because uh, McMahon Sr. wanted a, you know, a squeaky clean, all-American mm-hmm. type to kind of segue out of the ethnic champions at the mm-hmm. time. Billy was a was an, an intermediate transitional champion, but the popularity that he got, and I'm sure Vince Jr. saw this and maybe tried to talk to his dad. But his dad, as you said, was a man of honor, and he adhered and did not change the date of Billy losing the title and unfortunately uh the stories that are out there from keith Elliott greenberg who wrote billy's biography that billy wanted to turn babyface he saw what the crowd was doing he wanted to turn babyface and hold the title longer but that wasn't going to happen because mcmahon senior had already made his commitment to backland and then graham unfortunately he kind of fell off the face of the earth after he lost to to backland and kind of spiraled into a deep depression after that happened and and it's unfortunate but mcmahon senior this is more testament to him that he was just kind of like he ain't changing his plans he's winning on april 30th 77 he's losing on february 20th 78 and that's that and that's the way it went when uh, I, you were I, you were not at that show though on february 20th right no i would i would i would remember that but when i'm i was I finally <laughs> Superstar Graham, when Ring of Honor was out in L.A. in 2009-ish, I told him I used to love going. And, you know, the, you, when you had the belt, it was my favorite time, one of my favorite times. And uh, he looked at me and goes, yeah, they should have let me keep that title. And he yeah. was, you know, like he I never like, forgot. Whoa. He never forgot that, Carrie. He really didn't. And I remember that day like it was yesterday because I knew, you know, was tipped off or whatever, that that's the night that Backlund's going to win. So the first thing I did, and I believe I was with George, as I typically was, is I went to the Warwick Hotel that day in Manhattan. That's where Vince McMahon Jr. was there with Backlund. They were going to a men's clothing store to buy Backlund a suit because McMahon said something, and I was in earshot of it. I'll never forget it. He goes, you're going to be a champion after tonight, so you got to dress like one. That was, to me, I was like, holy smokes. And then here I am with my camera and I go position myself at ringside right before the start of the show because Napolitano and Galapter and the Japanese photographers and you know everyone's kind of knowing that this is going to happen and I get pulled from ringside right before the show starts from Mel Phillips because I had just appeared on their TV. I had wrestled on January 10th, 78. I taped uh, two matches. And then George, my buddy, put my picture in the program that night. Uh, Jimmy Carter was on the cover of it and Backlund was on the cover. But inside the, the program was a picture of me and Strongbow in the middle of the ring. And they pulled me from ringside and I couldn't shoot the show. I had to watch it from the curtain with the rest of the boys because I wasn't allowed at ringside side. So I kind of job myself out of a job. That's uh, a priceless story. And I, 
I remember that program. I wasn't there, but I've seen it. How the hell did Jimmy Carter wind up on the cover of the program? I don't know, because George put those George together. George made them, right? Yeah, him and uh, Kitzer at the time, they were uh, they were in business. Right. Thus, that's how you got it in the MSG program. Yeah, George was uh, George great. shot me, uh, you know, in Philly and those matches I had one with uh, Dusty and then the other one with me and Joe Turco against Peter Maivia and Strongbow in a tag match. And George shot. I got incredible pitches from that night. My only two matches in the ring ever, you know. And three Hall of Famers. Yes, three Hall of Famers. And I was supposed to wrestle Backlund that night as well. And I didn't know what I was doing. This is right before Backlund is going to win the title. And here's a guy who, you know, they saw that I had no ability at all. So uh, when it was time for the third TV taping, me against Backlund one-on-one, uh, Monsoon was like, you're done for the night. You don't have to do it. You're done. And I got my got my $90 and that was the end of it. John, maybe they replaced you with Lee Wong. Maybe somebody like that. But I, I was, in a way, very relieved. You know, Backlund would have stretched the shit out of me. I mean, especially when you know when you're in there with somebody you don't, you know, that you know doesn't know what he's doing. So I'm very happy that I didn't. Although I did see my name on the booking sheet, and it was me and Backlund, and and then they were like, uh, Montana's like, you're done for the night. I was like, oh, thanks. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the special episode you have coming out, talking about superstar Billy Graham. I, I don't know anybody that talks bad about him. When we got to meet him at the convention, he was, he was the nicest guy. Just to wrap things up, when we talk about this show, what we really talk about is the history of the WWE. It was called the WWWF, became the WWF, and became the WWE. And things they did back then changed wrestling forever. We talk about the Shea Stadium show. Wasn't a good show, but it was the idea of a Shea Stadium show that moves along to make a WrestleMania. If superstar Billy Graham at that time was turned babyface, you would have had Hulkamania 10 years or so earlier. Imagine how much it would have changed professional wrestling. Absolutely. It's like a puzzle game, you know, trying to fit in the pieces of what could have happened. But uh, then you think of Backlund holding the title, John and Tim, for almost five years. But Mm -hmm. it was successful. So what do we know? What do we know? It was successful, but no one looks back and goes, you know what I remember about the backland? I Okay, maybe one max, the snooker, when he was versus snooker. But there's nothing else you look back and go, wow, remember that batch with backland and... It still sold out most towns. They did good business. Uh, somehow. I couldn't stand it. I accepted it as a fan in the beginning, but I'm like, you know, come on. He was uh, too goody two shoes for my taste, but... Like we said, what do I know? I was out of the business at that time during Backlund's reign. I had stopped going altogether with the exception of going to some really cool NWA shows in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I lived and shot some pictures for George. But I missed all of that Backlund stuff. And it wasn't until uh, the Rock and Wrestling Connection that I got back in and started watching again. Let's continue on to this show. And on today's show, we're looking back on a little history. Today's show, there's a Texas death match in this card, and it's between Jay Strongbow and Freddie Blassie. Uh, John, let, let's just reiterate a little here, John, that this is a WWF version of a Texas death match because we saw, like before we saw, the, the gladiator match between Pedro and Blassie. That was the WWF version of this. So uh, what can we talk about the Texas death match? What do you know, like the history of the Texas death match? And was it really a Texas death match when it made it to the guard? That was one thing which I always felt was false advertising when they promoted it on TV. Uh, This is going to be a return Texas death style match because it really was not different from the other matches. 
And when Blassie fought uh, Morales in that rematch, December of 71, Mm -hmm. when they promised it was a gladiator death match, it was false advertising. And even that Texas death match that we're going to talk about tonight from June the 4th, 1973, between Strongbow and Blassie was not real Texas death match. And Tim, you put it correctly. It was a WWF version of a Texas death match, which meant it was a regular match, Gary. If you want to see an example of what John is talking about, Bobby Duncan against Backland, Texas death, where they lock up and the referees like separating them. And I'm going like, what the hell's going on? The fans should have rioted over that. Yes. It was just accepted. And you would come back again and again. You'd come back again and again because you didn't care. (laughs) You just wanted to go see wrestling. And it didn't matter, but uh, that was really, it used to get to me too as a kid. And and that was wrestling at the Garden. They did their own wrestling. We, we were trying to go over in the history and find the history of the Texas Death Match, where it started with Dory Funk Jr., but no one really knows. Like, this is the hardest part of going back and doing these shows, besides what we can do from the Garden, going finding in history of stuff and when things started. Uh, sometimes they start at one place or they start another place. There, there's, no, there's no universal thought to this. No, there's no uh, true history with uh, pro wrestling like there is with Major League Baseball, the NFL, NHL, every other friggin' sport. I mean, everything's documented. Wrestling had all its territories. Everything is everything is haphazardly kept in regard to records. It's all kind of like, were you alive? Maybe you could write about it or talk about it. There's no um, real, true, documented history of this stuff out there. Well, let's get into today's card. Monday, June 4th, 1973, Madison Square Garden, bell time, 8.30. Another sellout, 22,146. Fun fact, it's the night before Alice Cooper played Madison Square Garden. John, any buildup, any TV buildup you remember about this? Any you, Kerry? Uh, I remember just the fact that, you know, it was such a brawl in April when Jonathan fought Morales. It really was, you know, stopped because of blood and that alone in the promos that led up to this rematch, that alone was selling the tickets because Jonathan was legitimately somebody that you could see beating Morales because of his size, six foot nine or six, ten, close to seven feet, his agility in the ring. He was somebody that if it was legit, you can easily beat a guy like Morales. And you thought that maybe this guy had a chance to beat Pedro. So that was the driver for the ticket. So I think it was really a one match show with the exception of that false advertising with Blassie in the rematch against Strongbow in what they would say would be Texas death. Well, let's go to the first match. Mike McCord for El Olimpico to a 20-minute time limit. John, uh, Kerry, what are they waiting here for? Why, Why 20 minutes with these guys? I used to go to these shows with my cousin, Mike, and Mike's four years older than me, and he would get the tickets. Now, I hear you guys talk about getting tickets. John would go to the Ticketron. Well, Mike used to go the next morning. He lived in uh, like Passaic area, so he would zip into the city and go to the garden, and we didn't get ringsides. We would sit in the old, John, remember the reds, orange, yellow, green, blue? We'd sit in the center like the orange, but in the middle. And uh, that's the way uh, I'd obtain the tickets. But we used to say, there's nothing better than an opening bout. Well, I don't know about this one. (laughs) Very true. 20 minutes of wasted time. I was never a fan of Olympico. Mike McCord was good, big bodybuilder and such. But it it was like, come on, give us a break. 20 minutes, that was it. Never get that time back. Once again, nobody complained. No. Nobody complained. 
See, right off, right off the bat, I'm learning from you guys that nobody complained out of these things. Let's go to match number two. Blackjack Lanza defeated Mario Soto in nine minutes, 35 seconds. Yeah, Lanza coming in, and um, this was right before, I guess, they were going to start teaming up with Mulligan, and then they had their run. And uh, Soto was, of course, a mainstay at the Garden, and even wrestled probably more at the Garden than he did even on TV. I didn't see him very much on TV, but it was an easy victory for Lanza, and it was another it was kind of throwaway match. There was something you didn't see often, even though it was obvious that Lanza's going to beat Soto, they often didn't have the Latin wrestlers get pinned and lose at the Garden. Even though Manuel Soto was not a superstar, he was beloved Latino wrestler. So that was a bit of a rarity. Yeah, it was, actually. Good point, Gary. Going back to Black Jack Lanza, he became a road agent, is that correct? Yeah, he did. I mean, uh, he was there for many, many years. I mean, his real name is John Lanzo. He was trained by Vern Gagne. He debuted in 1961. He retired in 85 as an actual in-ring performer. Never really known to be a good worker, but he had that, you know, he had that cowboy gimmick in the claw. His first tag team partner was Bobby Duncombe, and they were managed by Bobby Heenan, and that was, uh, I believe, in the AWA territories. And then he did team to uh, get that WWE WF Tag Team Championship with Blackjack Mulligan against Dominic DiNucci and Irish Pat Barrett, who was ironically given the title when Victor Rivera left for the IWA in mm -hmm. 75. Uh, but the Blackjacks first teamed together in 72, and they were big heels in the AWA. And then, as we alluded to, he retired in 85 and worked as a road agent. Uh, and he was a member and is a member of the WWE Hall of Fame class of 2006. Speaking of IWA, real quick, John, were you at the inaugural Roosevelt Stadium? Yes. Show? I was, yes. Yeah, in the in the rain with the mud. I dragged a girl. I was trying to court and I'm dragging her to wrestling. That was not a good first horrible. date if you're trying to court somebody on that show. That Roosevelt Stadium was a shithole anyway. Oh. You know, I was there. I was at ringside. It started raining. Fans were throwing mud balls into the ring. It was not the, the, the best debut for the IWA in the territory. But, of course, they were blocked from the Garden, from the Coliseum. So they had to go to Roosevelt Stadium. Roosevelt Stadium had been closed for many years. He got the plumbing working. And they started running concerts in like, because I went to a few. I saw Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young the night that Nixon resigned. Wow, 77, uh, yeah. August, yeah. And I was also at an Eric Clapton show when he was in the height of his substance abuse problems where he only played for 30 minutes and there was, there was a riot. Uh, well, mm. people were throwing things at the stage and the show was over and that was it. So Roosevelt Stadium was, I was going to say, shoddy at best. It wasn't even shoddy. It was it was dreck, as my Jewish grandmother <laughs> used to say. And yet you bring a date. What's up with that, Karen? And I brought a date. It didn't work out. <laughs> well, let's go to match number three. Tony Gurria fought Moondog Maine to a 20-minute time limit. Okay, gentlemen, uh, I don't. Oh. I have never been to these shows, so I just want to go over. We're talking the first three matches lasted about 50 minutes. Yeah, and for what? Sure. John I, and Tim, I liked Moondog Maine. He was yeah. a bizarre character. Yes. He had a, a bit of a run in uh, WWWF. But Tony Gurria was always, he was a perennial semi-main eventer. So they weren't, you And know, the I mean, girls loved him. 
Oh, yes. He was a good-looking guy. Hey, Kerry, let me just ask you a question real quick. When you were running a Ring of Honor, knowing that this is your history, watching these guys and, and pulling characters, did you ever put together a character for the Ring of Honor that you pulled something out of the Madison Square Garden shows you saw as a kid? Not really. It was it was a different era. Earlier in the podcast, we were talking about you know Bruno coming in, and I kept that tradition going. We brought in Bill Watts. We brought in uh, the Midnight Express, Ricky Steamboat, Ox Baker, uh, then later on Mick Foley. So that was like my contribution to old time wrestling to at least show some respect to history, which history and wrestling do not go together. Normal. <laughs> no, no, they don't. But it's, you know, it's so funny you say that now because the WWE has a lot of shows going on about history, about the history of the WWE, if it only goes back to the 90s. They're all bogus. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. They're all it's a work. Bogus. It's a work show. It's a work right. show. Well, let's go on uh, to match number four. Chief J Strongbow defeats your guy, Freddie Blassie, via countout in 15 minutes, 20 seconds. The WWE program listed as a Texas death match, a return Texas death match. Gentlemen, I'm going to throw it to you. What are they doing here? What's happening here? It was just horrible. It really was. There's no Texas death match. I mean, the thing I, I have remember. have a countout in the Texas death match. I know. That's, that, that's not even supposed to happen. There's supposed to be no countouts, no disqualification, no stopping for blood. Uh, you have to have a pinfall or a submission in a Texas death match. That's supposed to be the rules. And, of course, it didn't happen. I do remember, I mean, I was backstage because... I ran Blassie's fan club at the time. Freddie was not in a good mood. <laughs> I remember that because it's usually very, you know, very friendly. And he was just in kind of in a rush. And I think he was just kind of pissed off that he was even going to be counted out against uh, Strongbow that night. Blassie didn't like to do jobs. That must have been one of his last matches, John. Yeah, I think he came back in July against Victor Rivera in 73, okay. July 23rd, I think is the date. And he fought Rivera and then he split until he came back to manage Volkov in 74. And speaking of people who don't like putting people over, uh, match number five, women's champion, the fabulous Mula fought Jan Sheraton to a draw in 10 minutes, 59 <laughs> seconds, uh, listed as a ladies' champion match. This is the this is what I want to get into with you, you gentlemen. Like, like Freddie, Fabulous Moolah, Mil Mascaras, the Sheik don't like doing jobs. So if you get Fabulous Moolah to do a draw with you, that's like winning a match. How do you have a draw at 10 minutes and 59 seconds? That's, that's yeah, nothing. that's crazy too, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if that's accurate, but uh, who, who can remember? And I'm surprised Moolah didn't, she would never lose. Unless this was one of Moolah's girls that maybe she was kind of looking to put over a little bit, but not letting her win, but giving her a little bit of a rub by having her do a draw against her. Because that is very unusual because Moolah obviously never did jobs. Uh, why would it even be a 10-minute match if a, a match supposed to be at least one fall or 20-minute time limit? It's typical. True. Maybe someone had to catch a plane. Well, let's digress. Let's go out to match number six. The WWF World Champion Pedro Morales pinned Don Leo Jonathan with the Grand Wizard in 12 minutes, 14 seconds with a reverse cradle as a challenger attempted a backdrop. 
Yeah, I remember this one vividly because I filmed it. Uh, so we'll, of course, uh, put this up for patrons uh, when this uh, podcast comes out. It was a match that started quick, didn't wait for the bell to ring. You know, they just started brawling. It was a good match. It was a lot of action in the 12 minutes plus in this match. And to see Morales vault over that top rope and put him in that reverse cradle and pin Jonathan one, two, three was really interesting to see. And I was really, I was kind of sad about it because I was really rooting for Jonathan, even though, mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, you. You were hoping beyond hope that maybe something would happen. But uh, and that was it, because I knew Jonathan wasn't going to be long for the territory after that, because I believe he was only contracted to come in for a little bit. And then he comes back uh, in 74, I believe. I was doing a little bit of research. He had some matches against Morales in Philly and Boston, but he didn't do these house shows. He was working mainly in Montreal in that territory so he was almost coming in as a favor. Uh, he yeah. did the TV tapings, couple, only a few, and uh, he was in and out until he came back and wrestled Bruno in uh, 70, what, 75? Uh, 74, he came oh. back for Bruno. But yeah, Jonathan was a guy, I mean, you could believe, you know, he might win. Yeah. And he was at the end of his career, basically. Yeah, but he still had it. He had it. He did yeah. have it. Well, speaking of guys that come in and out, match number seven, Victor Rivera defeated the Great Goliath in 11 minutes, 27 seconds. The Great Goliath, you guys were talking about earlier, he was over in L.A. And they used to, as we spoke about earlier, they used to show the wrestling from the Olympic. They brought in Black Gordman on another show. Um, I used to love Gordman and Goliath because they stole Freddie Blassie's gimmick of the biting. Mm -hmm. And there would be blood on TV, on these TV matches from LA. So I was very excited to see Goliath, but I knew that uh, even though they were both Latino, Rivera was going to go over and he did. Yeah. The one thing that got to me as always, when you talk about seeing Goliath and even Black Gordon at Madison Square Garden, that they never put them together as a team at the Garden. It was always singles. I was why are they bringing these guys in individually and not putting them together because they were a feared and very successful tag team on the West Coast. They were the America's champions. And most of the fans, Tim, and I think John will agree with me, unless you were, even though it was on TV, most of the people were not familiar with them. I, the majority of the crowd watched Channel 9, WWWF, and didn't seek out the uh, Florida or the California wrestling. For me, it was like, oh my God, great Goliaths there. This is really cool. But most people didn't feel that way. You had to be a hardcore fan to appreciate right. it. God, I, I wish I knew at least one of these hardcore fans, no less two of them, on the same show. If you had guys that met each other back then, what kind of friendship would you have had? Mm-hmm. I know. We have it now. It's good. It's uh, attrition. There's not a lot of us left. Right. We're uh, a dying breed, my friend. We're Right. I did a lot with Jim Cornette in Ring of Honor, and he talked about getting to see the, his first Madison Square Garden show I believe in like 79, uh, they had cable. Him and his buddy, they were astounded on how slow the action was or the lack of action at the garden. But we accepted it because this is, you know. This is what we knew. Right. It's what we knew and we had come to expect it. It's funny you guys say that being a different generation. I'm just the one generation behind you guys. 
it, it's the same thing with me because I used to always watch wrestling from the 80s on TV. And then when we got cable, I saw TBS and I saw my favorite at the time was a world class out of Texas. So I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I was so this is great. But I would still watch the WWF product thinking that they were going to be great. And it wasn't. You just it was different. It was different stuff. So I know what you're saying. You always knew one thing until you saw something else. You go, my gosh, I didn't know how bad this one thing was. That's why I love the L.A. Uh, Olympic Auditorium shows. Uh, beginning to watch that and getting to see Mil Moskris for the first time and Gordman, Goliath, all the other stars, Tolis, Lassie, Pi. You know the, that those Olympic Auditorium old television shows, which are not available because they were erased over, was such a magical time. And what a great territory! What a great arena! They used to run Wednesdays live TV, and then every other Friday night was their big house shows at the Olympic Auditorium. You know, it motivated and prompted me to go out there in 74 to see the battle royal really uh, yes i went as a 17 year old kid my first plane trip and that's the night that black gordman won the battle royal and that was andre the giant's debut in los angeles was that weekend and i just wanted to see that 22 man battle royal because the first one i saw was in 72 and that's when bruno had uh, got out there and won the battle royal and that was just kind of like i gotta get it. i gotta go see a battle royal if you remember this john they did not have a guard guardrail, but they sort of did. You know what it was? It was the front row. They yeah. did not <laughs> They didn't the put people in the front row, row right. Right. So the second row was the first row of seats. Yeah. And there was that lady that had the rubber chicken. Yes. Right? Remember that? Yes. And she was always she was on the, the she was she on, was on the, the, the hard camera side, right? right? Right. And she'd have these white outfits and she'd yeah. had a, ha a hat and yeah. and she'd have that that rubber chicken. She'd be shaking at the heels. Oh, yeah. And the, the ringside doctor was Dr. Bernhard Schwartz and the Bernhard and the ring announcer, of course, the legendary Jimmy Lennon. That's right. As long as we're throwing these names out, let's not forget the great referee, Johnny Red Shoes Dugan. Yes, Johnny Red Shoes Dugan. Yes, he was a great, he was a flyer himself, the way he used to like just leap over the guys to do the one through three count. I mean, I loved those shows and uh, Judo Gene LaBelle, of course, another yes. announcer and referee and performer as well. And he trained Ronda Rousey. I mean, what a historic career that guy had. So, yeah, that was a great territory. And uh, I was so happy that I was able to get to go to the Olympic Auditorium that one time. Oh, I actually promoted a show there That's with AAA good. in uh, either late 95 or 96. I don't want to get off track here, but I heard your uh, interview with Ron Scholar. Yeah. Sounds to me, as opposed to my Ring of Honor career, where I, I never made a penny. All I did was lose money. That show must have made at least broke even. Uh, oh, it made money. It made money, right? It made money. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It was the third largest skate of the year. That's a rarity, John. You know that. Yeah. Yeah, it is very much so. And, and you know, dealing with the permits that you'd have to bring in from, you know, Mexico with the guys and just dealing. I didn't deal with any of that. I was just kind of the connector. I put it all together, you know, the parties and this and that. And I had a piece of the company just based on what I did was to put everybody together. But I wasn't involved in the day to day operation or the booking or anything like that. A matter of fact, in 94, you know, there was shows and each show started 
dipping in attendance a little bit and yeah. I had shares of stock and I sold my shares of stock in the company sometime in mid 94. And that was right before they did the deal with WCW, but they didn't make any money on that pay-per-view anyway. Scholar actually says that I'm the only one that really made any significant money from that. You are. Uh, I sold all my, uh, my stock to them. And I think it was 20, 25 grand, something like that. That's good. Look at it. We have one winner. One winner here. Let's let's go on to our last match of the night. Match number seven. Gorilla Monsoon and Haystacks Calhoun defeated Professor Toro Tanaka and Mr. Fuji in the best two out of three falls match. Two to zip. First fall, Monsoon and Calhoun won by disqualification. And the second fall, Monsoon and Calhoun won. Um, I was going to ask you, John, with the Olympic Auditorium, was Haystacks Calhoun in that battle royal? Uh, he was not in that battle royal that I went to. They used a guy named Man Mountain Mike yeah, in Man LA. Mountain Mike. Yeah, he was as big as Calhoun in a lot of ways. But I, I've never seen Calhoun. He he is listed at like uh between four hundred and fifty to five hundred pounds. How big was this guy? No, 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 no. He was always six hundred and one pounds. <laughs> right? He never missed a meal and was five ninety-eight. He never overate and was 613. He was always 600. Always 601. And his real name was William D. Calhoun. He debuted in 1955, retired in 1980. He was listed as six foot six and he weighed in at 601 pounds. I remember Vince Jr. saying there was always an honorary 601 pounds. As always, everything in wrestling is exaggerated, but his real weight was probably 450 to 500. Calhoun was an attraction like Andre the Giant and often booked in handicap matches and battle royals. And uh, he routinely ate a dozen eggs for breakfast. <laughs> I saw him driving down 33rd Street one time. Really? Essentially, they, they rigged the car so that he was sitting in the back seat, sort of. They must have somehow gimmicked the steering wheel. Um, this is true. So th th that was his car. And uh, he, there he is driving, <laughs> driving in the city, day of a show. He was a mainstay in WWF going back to like early, very early 60s. Yeah, and he even had that match with Bruno. And it could have been before Bruno won the title when he actually lifted before. Calhoun up for the very yes. first time. And that had never happened before. And just to show what Bruno's strength was. But yeah, Calhoun, one thing I remember about him was I always was fearful when I was shooting at ringside when I had my press passes. And when he was doing a tag team match and he'd be because typically George Napolitano and and Bill Apter and Frankie Amato at the time, they always had that center position at the ring. I didn't want to sit to the left of them because that's where McMahon was typically sitting. And then on the right was where the ring post was. And that's where I traditionally set up my stuff. But when Calhoun was there, I mean, I'd always be fearful. What if this effing guy falls <laughs> down on me? Because he was freaking tremendous. He was tremendous. But yeah, not, he was scary. Not to mention Gorilla Monsoon with him. He was a big man. Too. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes. They seem to end most of these garden shows with these tag team matches. Even though these are marquee names, people had to catch the train. That was me. You wanted to grab your, you wanted to get to your car or whatever way you got there. It wasn't like everyone stayed to the end. This was, no. this was a, a, a this was a very good one as far as name value because Tanaka and Fuji were, you know, in their prime. Yep. But uh, what a card. Okay, let's go over that. What do you think about this card? Besides the names of the Hall of Famers, we had like three draws out of eight matches. There was a count out. There was a couple of, you had 50 minutes of ugh, matches in the beginning. How would you guys rate this card? 
It didn't matter. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't matter. It was. Good. I have yeah. to agree. It didn't matter. We would be there anyway, and right. we got that's the see, way it was, man. You got to see it. Uh, uh, we were hoping we'd see Blassie uh, make strong. I was hoping make Strongbow bleed, and it's going to be mm-hmm. they're going to really do it this time. Uh, you're getting to see Don Leo, Jonathan. I knew he was special, so you put up with the three draws. It's amazing when you have something and you don't know anything else, it is what it is. And of course, this podcast is all hindsight in 2020. And, and hearing you guys talk about it, I always hear uh, John's love for this, but hearing your love for this, Kerry, shows how much it wasn't more about the batches. It was about being there and, and seeing these guys live and being part of this and seeing like the great Goliath come in and you guys are like, oh my God, here's a great Goliath. And people sitting next to you going, who's the great Goliath? Just being there and knowing these guys. And there's one thing that I don't know if you guys have ever mentioned this. You probably have. One of the highlights of every show was when they would announce next month's card. Absolutely. And that would come after the title match, whether it was Bruno, Pedro, Billy Graham, Backlund, whomever. They would announce the entire card starting with the lowest match on up. And you knew when it was going to happen because that's when either friendly Bob Freed, I mean, he'd come out with with his sport jet and he'd take out the big long piece of paper. So you knew that, all right, now they're going to announce the next show and what the match is. It was so exciting. Yeah, because you were like, who are they bringing in? Well, well, before we get to the Patreon stuff, thanking our patrons, I want to ask you, Kerry, do you have a favorite memory from the Garden, maybe a favorite match? It seems like every time you went was a great memory, but do you have a favorite one out of, out of all the years that you went? There's so many, but I remember, and I don't know if you, if we've gotten to this, you guys have gotten to this yet. It wasn't Texas death, but there were some really violent matches with the Valiant Brothers against Bruno and Victor Rivera, maybe. Strongbow. Yeah, Bruno and Strongbow. That was in 74. Those were a lot of action, a lot of blood and guts. I also remember, I think it was 75, Koloff and Bruno in a steel cage. The first time. First time they allowed the steel cage, so they had to deliver something. And if you watch that match on YouTube or wherever it's available, Bruno beat the hell out of Koloff. Koloff had mm-hmm. very little offense. Of course, the Superstar Graham era, we could go on and on. It was all exciting. And we'll get to it, yeah. Well, before we leave, again, we want to thank our patrons, patreon.com slash John Rizzi. John said he'll put some more stuff up there. Every Sunday, every Sunday you put stuff up on the Patreon. Is that correct, John? Every Sunday at 6 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Eastern. Our next show, it will be June 30th. A headline in the show will be George the Animal Steel getting a shot at Pedro's title once again. Uh, and this is the first time at the Garden they open up the Felt Forum. Now, we just talked about the Felt Forum earlier. It's only 4,200 seats, but that's an extra. And they're just watching TV, which makes it incredible that someone's going to buy a ticket just to watch TV, something that we can do in our own houses today. Especially with George Steele in the main event. Yeah. Exactly. And they only opened it up after it was a sellout, which I find pretty amazing. Correct. And once again, we want to shout out to uh, Scott Teal and Crowbar Press. What What's the Bible, John? Tell everyone about the Bible. Wrestling in the Garden, the Battle for New York, works, shoots, and double crosses. On Crowbar Press, Scott Teal and J. Michael Kenyon wrote it. It's a complete history of wrestling at Madison Square Garden. 
that takes it right back to the uh, early 1900s, if you look at it, 1879, 1877, uh, you know, the whole history of the garden and wrestling. And it's really quite comprehensive. And uh, it has all the garden shows and uh, in alphabetical order. It also has indexes, uh, you know, most garden appearances. And it, it goes through December 26, 2016. So it's not that outdated. I wish they can do a, a a second edition of it that would take us to present day. But it is the Bible that we use here. It's called uh, Wrestling in the Garden, available at crowbarpress.com. Scott Teal, once again, thank you. And, Kerry, thank you for being on the show. We really do appreciate it. Yes. Yes, Kerry, uh, it's a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for having me on. If anyone who's listening wants to hear some Carrie Silken Ring of Honor stories and Carrie Silken ticket scalping stories and other things, certainly not G-rated. Working the streets in New York City in the 80s, ticket scalping, and uh, I didn't live the cleanest life necessarily, but it makes for some wild, some some good stories. It's with Ian Riccoboni as my co-host. He's the lead announcer for Ring of Honor, and it's called Last Stop Penn Station. There's 70 episodes available on all podcast platforms. Highly recommended. And if people want to find you on social media, Carrie, where can they find you? On Instagram and Twitter at R-O-H-C-A-R-Y at R-O-H Carrie. I really had a good time today, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, thanks for your time. Uh, John, anything else? No, that's it. I just want to say thank you again to Carrie and thank you to Tim and thank you to, to Richie Garcia for doing the research for these uh, shows. And we look forward to the next one. Until next time, for Carrie Silken, John Arizzi, and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time.